Amen. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Awesome songs this morning. Join me, Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Uh, Lord willing, we move forward in that. Our kids are being dismissed. Uh, as Mike alluded to early, and as most of you already know, the last two weeks uh, have really been great. Uh, every week, I believe, is great at Grace View because the Lord is always here. But just been a lot of activity, uh, the last really good activity. And um, uh, I was just thinking this morning, it kind of hit me in an, in an emotional way, uh, what the Lord has done this past week. Uh, you heard a dollar amount. Thank you so much for those of you that have given to that. Uh, that was that, there's so many layers to what happened this past week, so many layers. Uh, our church was able to be a blessing to people in this community, and some of you were able to be blessed by some donations. Uh, and I hope those things met a lot of needs and the Lord raised money. But i got to tell you, something far greater uh, than the amount of money. I, I, it didn't really hit me till this morning. Uh, thinking through how people that are not even going on this mission trip just came and contributed, again, donations and prayer and giving, uh, but serving and spouses of people who are going on that trip, and those that are, are, are going on the trip, and some, they were here. There's there somebody here every day this week and every evening this week. And yesterday was a long day for these folks, but it kind of dawned on me. The layers, they're just spending time together, and they're working together. And it kind of hit me, man, I'm kind of excited to go to Uganda with this team. I don't know if you listen to me. we got a good team we got a good team going. These are good people, and God's already, I'm just watching it. And I'm like, man, they're, they're bonding, and they don't even know it. I'm, I'm excited. I hope Africa's got enough work to keep this crew busy. <laughs> they're coming. Uh, I'm excited about it. And I'm going to tell you, you say, I'm not going to Uganda. You ought to get behind these people. You ought to get behind these people. Praying already, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you, and just in the near coming days, uh, we're going to be challenging you to get behind them in another way, not just prayer, but by giving. Uh, obviously, yesterday was great, but the need is still there, and you're going to have an opportunity. You ought to get behind this group. Uh, tremendous people. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, I can't wait. We will probably be on each other's nerves, I'm sure, by the end of 10 days together, I imagine. But uh, if I'm going to go spend 10 days flying in different time zones, this is a good group to do it with. I'm excited about it already. Acts chapter 6. Uh, I believe that if you were to make in your mind a mental list or even start writing down a list of the great men and women in the Bible, something tells me that not many in our room would put on their short list the man that we're going to be talking about the next few weeks, but I hope by the end of chapter 6 and 7, he would make your list. Uh, Stephen is one, I mean, listen, I mean on the short list. I mean on the short list. I don't have a quote, but MacArthur said he belongs in the list with the Abrahams and the Davids and the Moses and the Samuels and the apostles. You're like, what? I should have heard more about this guy. He only gets a short time. He proves that you don't have to live a long life to have an impactful life. And this guy, man, this man we're getting ready to read about is special. Special. You ought to have your Bible out. You ought to follow along. We're only going in one text, but keep it open in front of you. Um, so three weeks ago, we, we moved forward in our, our movement in the book of Acts and the early history of the church. 
And we hit this point where the need for what I think are deacons came into play. And so we jumped from there to church leadership the last two weeks. But now we're back in Acts. Can I kind of share something with you? A, a little, just a suspicion. Luke, our writer of the book of Acts, is definitely including things in this history book, this inspired history book about the early church. And definitely we needed to know what are these people, these, these deacons that the book of 1 Timothy and Titus ends up talking about, where they come from, and no doubt that's part of his purpose. But I think as we really get a bigger picture, the whole deacon thing was introduced to really introduce two men. Stephen, and then after that, Philip, primarily Stephen first and Philip second. It's like, hey, I'm giving you this history, but really it's to get you to look at these two guys and how God to use it. Let's, make, let's be clear. The two, humanly speaking, prominent men in the book of Acts is Peter early and Paul later. But they're bridged by these two guys. And Stephen belongs on the list. Though he's going to die, he's going to die in chapter 7. The scene, I'll not revisit all of it. Again, you'd go back and listen to the message three weeks ago about deacons. But the church was just growing in number. I mean, it was exploding. Uh, thousands and thousands of people were coming to Christ. We're now looking over years of time period now. I don't know exactly. We're probably looking at four, five, six years. Some say even more than that. But the church is just growing and growing and growing. We've got these report cards, last report. The la it, it's been a while, but the last report, 5,000 males. So I keep using the number 20, 25,000 people in the church. But that's several chapters ago. It's just growing, again, through the years. And they didn't really do without. Nobody was doing without because people would offer. It's like, hey, there's needs. They'd sell their property, give the money to the apostles. They would distribute it in the form of no doubt of food and perhaps money. But eventually the work got to be too much for them. There's still just 12 guys, and wow, it's just taken off. And they're still trying to teach and preach, but also distribute these monetary funds. Long story short, at the beginning of chapter 6, there became some disgruntled people. Because the group of Jews that lived outside of Israel in the dispersion came to Jerusalem, got saved, and stayed in Jerusalem. When, when the distribution is being made to the poor and the needy, their widows are being neglected somehow. I can't go through all the theories of that again, but they felt like the local Jews were getting a better deal out of things. And so this complaint arose, and the apostles admitted, like, yeah. We're not denying they're not being neglected. The thing is, we just can't stop teaching and preaching to go full-time doing a better job at distributing the food and the money. So you guys need to pick out seven men that have these three qualifications, and we will appoint them to this business, this duty. And so they did that, and we end up reading seven men's names. So what I want to do, I'm going to go back just for a moment, bring in verse 5 from three weeks ago's text. And then we're going to pick up verse 8 to 15. So that is our background. They went and picked up. They, they chose seven men. The apostles said, we're going to put this, them over that. We, the apostles, are going to keep devoting ourselves to prayer and the preaching and teaching of the word of God. And God blessed this plan. Short, they picked seven men. The apostles laid their hand on, hands on them. They started their ministry. The apostles kept doing their ministry. And, and the Lord just continued to bless. More and more people kept coming to the Lord, even Many of the priests, God was just blessing. This was obviously the right thing to do. Look, if you would, at verse 5. This whole, you need to pick out seven men. Verse 5. And what they said, what the apostles said, pleased the whole gathering. Everybody's pleased with that. Great. Our spiritual, our highest level spiritual leaders, they don't want to be tied up counting the money. 
They're not money hungry. They listen to us. They're letting us choose these deacons. This is awesome. What they said pleased the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip. And I'm not going to read all the other names. I'm going to skip verses 6 and 7. Did you catch it? So pay close attention to what we just read. Look at verse 5 one more time. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Skip down to verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Let that sink in. Stephen is doing great wonders. He's performing miracles. That's also like, wait, who? One of the deacons? He's performing great wonders. I mean, as people see what he's doing, they're awestruck. It's, they're filled with wonder, and it's serving as signs to validate this man like the apostles' signs had validated them. And so he's doing this again with no fake trickery. He's doing it among the people. We don't know the nature of these miracles, but because he's connected to grace, he's full of grace, then I would say these are probably healings of people. Doesn't say that. I don't think he's just out picking up big rocks to show, look, wow, this guy. I don't think it's useless displays of power, but he had it. It's full of grace and power. Verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians. Let me pause right there. Cyrene, you remember Simon of Cyrene. This is where we would call modern Libya, very tip of northern Africa. So some of those people that live there, they're now in Jerusalem. They're part of this dispersed Jews group, the Hellenistic. We talked about that three weeks ago if you were with us. And the Cyrenians... Uh, so the Cyrenians, that would be modern-day Libya. Alexandrians, this is also over in Egypt. This was a large city back in that day. There's Jews living in Jerusalem from these two parts of Africa. Now back to verse 9. Some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia. This is not talking about the continent of Asia. This is what we call modern-day Turkey. So Cilicia, this is where Saul of Tarsus is from. Uh, Tarsus is a region in Cilicia that was that's part of modern-day Turkey. And in Asia was also, it's called Asia Minor back then. Asia was also in what we call modern-day Turkey. So we have Jews from those areas that are also over in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem has Jews from Africa, to a couple of different cities. They have Jews from over in what we call Turkey. They're there, and they're in the synagogue of the freedmen. Or there's discussion, how many synagogues are we talking about? But keep reading. Some of those who belonged to this synagogue or these synagogues and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. So here's what they tell Stephen, guys, I'm telling you by his character. I know he knocked it out of the park as a deacon. It's just his character. But he doesn't stop with just working with his hands. This guy also has a ministry of teaching. He has the gift of teaching. You're going to see that in chapter 7. So he's using it in the synagogues, and they... By the way, I believe, I'm throwing this in, I believe Stephen, his work as a teacher and a preacher, is part of what led to verse 7, all these more disciples coming to the Lord. So I believe he had many great disciples, but also while he's teaching and preaching, some people don't like what he's saying, and so they start disputing with him, and there's these debates. They probably start like a little bit, what in the world? What are you saying? (laughs) Did you just 
If that's true, then that would mean, and I think it probably went to like, wait, and then all of a sudden they're getting organized. There's apparently just downright debates. But they couldn't beat him. Verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He just destroys them in these debates. Then, verse 11, they secretly instigated men who said, and that secretly instigated means they paid them to say things, and they paid them to even if it needs to, to lie under oath, Luke writes. Then they secretly, these leaders in the synagogues, when they couldn't beat him, they're going to try to undermine him, and we'll see what ends up happening in chapter 7. They secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now track with me. That's very broad in general. What does that mean? If that's all we had, are they trying to say Stephen stands up saying, Moses was a punk? No, that's not what he's saying. Moses is not a man of God. He was not a prophet. No, that's not what he's saying. They're not saying he's getting up and saying, I don't believe in God. It's going to be clarified in a moment. They start this, he's blaspheming against Moses and against God. What does that mean? Keep reading. Verse 12. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. They got them all worked up. And they came upon him and seized him. The idea is violently with force. Violently. They seized him and brought him before the council. By now, if you've been with us, you should know what the council is. It's the council, the Sanhedrin. The highest court in Israel. 71 member. Here are these local synagogues. By the way, some historians, a lot of people question it. Some historians say there were as many, there were as, many as 480 synagogues in Jerusalem at this time. And so here's the Sanhedrin. And here comes some leaders of a synagogue or some synagogues. And they bring this guy Stephen in. And it's like, again, I'm reading between the lines. What are the charges against this man? What's going on? So verse 13. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Do you see it? Verse 11, he blasphemes against Moses and against God. Now, what are the charges against this man? Those are my, my words, but that's how it would start. Why are you bringing this man here? He never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. Oh, now we know what verse 11 is. What they were speaking, they didn't think he's speaking against the man Moses. It's what Moses wrote. Y'all help me out. When they say he is speaking against this holy place, what specifically are they thinking that Stephen is speaking against? What is it? He's against the what? Confidently. The temple. That's right. He's against this holy place. This man is here because he's against the temple and the law. Verse 14. What do you mean? Do you have any? So here comes the witnesses. For we have heard him say that this, you hear this, this phrase? This Jesus of Nazareth, like anything good can come out of Nazareth. This Jesus, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. And they're probably thinking, what? And the Sanhedrin, knowing that they had also brought similar charges against Jesus that did not stick. But here they're saying, this man is saying that this Jesus is going to destroy this place. And that this Jesus will change the customs that Moses delivered. This man says this Jesus is going to destroy this place. And he's just going to change all the customs. He's going to flip everything upside down that we Jews have been doing. That's what he's saying is going to happen. Are y'all tracking? 
This man says, this temple is going to be destroyed and, and all of our customs are going to be changed. Did Stephen say that? And gazing at him, all who sat in the council. So they're listening. What are the charges against this man? Here they start firing away. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you know, they're, just, and they're looking at him and they're like, man, this guy, he's guilty. I can tell. But then... Verse 15, gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Something doesn't matter. What you're saying doesn't match what we're looking at. Because he has a face of an angel. What does that mean? How do y'all know what an angel looks like? I don't, maybe Matthew chapter 28, verse 2 or 3 there, where the countenance was like lightning, perhaps. I don't know fully what verse 15 means. So let's go back to verse 5. Would you notice three, uh, five things with us this morning? Five things. Number one, Stephen was a man of God. Stephen was a man of God. He belongs on the short list. Stephen's a man of God. Once you've written that, would you, I hope you still have your Bible open, but I want to invite you, do not look back down at your verses for a moment. Once you've written, are you there? Don't look back down. Our text that we just read said that Stephen was full of four things. Don't look back down. Raise your hand if you can remember. Don't say it. Raise your hand. Can you remember one of the things the text said that Stephen was full of? He's like, I got one. Raise your hand. Keep it up if you remember two of the things that Stephen was said to be full of. Keep your hand up if you remember three of the things. Can you, anybody remember all four things? Stephen has said, y'all help me out. Stephen is said to be full of, name one. Yes. That's right. I have no idea what you said. Let's start here. I want to propose to you, what is this being full of? He said to be full of faith. He said to be full of the Holy Spirit. He said to be full of grace. And he said to be full of power. What does that mean? Would you write this down? I want to propose that being full of something means you have an abundance of that. It means you are being consumed with that. You're controlled by this. I dare say you're controlled and consumed to it to the point that you are identified by that. This man, Stephen, boy, he is consumed, controlled, identified. He has an abundance of faith. You ask somebody, hey, Stephen, I'm throwing a name at you. Stephen, faith, man. That guy's got faith. Stephen, what do you think? Grace. That guy is consumed with grace. He oozes grace. That guy is awesome. He has an abundance of grace. Throw the name at you. Stephen. What's that? That guy is powerful. Man, he has power. That guy's powerful. Stephen. You know what I think of? He's a man of the Holy Spirit. So I want to start with that one. I know I'm going a little out of order. I'm going to say Stephen is a man of God because he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Think about this. When the early church, 25,000 strong of them are told, search out among you seven men. And we know they have at least 5,000 males. You search out seven men that meet these qualifications. They have to have a good, honest reputation. They have to be filled with the Spirit. And they have to have wisdom Stephen makes the cut, but he doesn't just make the cut. He is literally listed first, and he's singled out. This guy is not just indwelt by the Spirit of God. He is dominated by the Spirit of God three times. I found this amazing. It just hit me this week. 
Three times, two in chapter 6 and again in chapter 7, the Bible goes out of its way to say that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 6, verse 3, we know that's a qualification to even be one of the deacons, so he had to have it. If that wasn't enough, it's assumed. Chapter 6, verse 5 clearly says he's full of the Spirit. And in chapter 7, verse 55, right before he's about to die, he being full of the Holy Spirit, gazes into heaven, sees the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This guy's full of the Spirit. He's identified by the Holy Spirit. He's consumed. He exudes the Holy Spirit. And you may say, man, that's great. I, I want this one to be the first one because, guys, I believe these other four points and six thoughts that are in these other points, they all flow from this one. Everything else we're going to say Flows from he's these other things because he's a man full of the Holy Spirit. So is this all we're supposed to do? Is this my job today? Hey everybody, Stephen's awesome. All right, let's move on. Isn't he great? I think our job is more than that. I think Stephen is not just supposed to be elevated in our mind. I think he's to be emulated. He's an example. So I want to ask you something. How do you get full of the Holy Spirit? I want you to really think about that. How do you get full of the Holy Spirit? I want to propose two things. I'll have you write it in a minute. Hear it first. Just rest. Let's hear it. I want to propose this number one. Being full of the Holy Spirit is the prerogative of God. I'm saying what I'm saying here this morning based off of experience, trying to match it with what I found to be true in the Word of God. So what I see in the Word of God obviously trumps everything else. But trying to, I believe there have been times in my life where God has filled me with the Holy Spirit or I've seen other people filled with the Holy Spirit and maybe they weren't even seeking it. God just did it because He can. God can fill anyone, consume them, control them so much so that they're identified with God in that moment. God can do that at any moment. Remember John chapter 3, verse number 8. The wind blows, Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound thereof, but you can't tell where it came from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit and what God does with the Holy Spirit, you can't force it and make it necessarily on your own. It's God's decision. So I would say, this is awesome. This guy's full of the Holy Spirit. How do you do it? It's God's prerogative, first of all. But I am going to say a second thing. Would you write this down? It's not just the prerogative of God. It is also a conscious, intentional choice by us as believers to do at least three or four things. Watch. We acknowledge the Holy Spirit. We surrender to the Holy Spirit. And then we obey the Holy Spirit. So it's his call anytime he wants to fill anyone. But being filled with the Spirit is also to intentionally, consciously pause, acknowledge the Holy Spirit, surrender to the Holy Spirit. Could I even add this word if you want to write it somewhere in your notes? Invite the Holy Spirit to fill you and use you. And then yield to and obey the Holy Spirit. That's what being filled with the Holy you say, Jeff, why would you add that second part? 
Because in Ephesians 5 verse 18, we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Are y'all tracking with that? Is everybody listening? Yes, it's God's prerogative, but if that's all there is, then why would we have this command, we are supposed to be filled with the Spirit? How should I? I am to do that. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled. If you're a Christian this morning, you are commanded in the Word of God to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I want to pause. Finish writing the note. I want to invite you right now. Acknowledge God the Father. In your heart, in your mind, right now, acknowledge God the Father. Acknowledge Christ. Right now, acknowledge the Holy Spirit. Acknowledge that He's in you. Acknowledge the Holy Spirit in you. Acknowledge Him. Talk to Him. Do it. Invite Him to control and consume you. Yield to Him. Surrender. to the, Talk to Him. I surrender to you. And then obey what He tells you. Obey what He tells you. If in this moment you are having feelings or thoughts you should not... Holy Spirit, I acknowledge you. I surrender to you. I am going to, you don't want me to think that. You don't want me to feel that. You want me to feel this. You want me to think this. And then you do what he says to do. That's how Stephen lived. Stephen didn't have more of the Holy Spirit than other people. The Holy Spirit had more of him than other people allowed. Number two. Stephen was a man of faith and power. Stephen was a man of faith and power. I alluded to this a while ago. Look at verse number 8. Stephen full of grace and power. We know back in verse number 5 the saying pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen a man full of faith. I'm going to connect those two. Stephen was this man full of faith and power. Now you really need to pay attention here. I hope you guys get a good 60-70% out of today's message of what I got out of it this week. This one's loaded in my heart, my mind. I'm I don't have what it takes to get it across, but I pray the Lord will. This is a man who is said to be performing wonders and signs. The idea among the people, and it's the idea he does this over and over. Up to this point, watch, we've gone from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, six chapters of Acts, and thus far, only Jesus and the apostles have performed miracles. And now we have this man, Stephen's, added to the list. He's going to be joined in chapter 8 by Philip, two of the deacons who just so happen to have hands laid on them by the apostles. And we know that there's going to be another man named Barnabas who's going to be associated with the apostles. And it's implied about other people, but specifically, it's only been Jesus, the apostles, and then there's Stephen. Would you write this down? I believe that Stephen was a man of great power because Stephen was a man of great faith. God has the prerogative again just to give him an, an ability to do great things, but I think it's really tied to Stephen had tremendous amounts of faith. He's identified by faith. He's consumed. He's controlled. This man is controlled by faith. He ends up having this ministry of great power. Now, let's talk about this one. Faith. There's levels of faith. Here's some people's faith. I just don't, I just don't think God's going to do it. I just don't think God's going to do it. Here's another level of faith. I think God can do this. I really think God can do this. That's definitely an improvement. But there's another level of faith above that. Watch. And this may be where you're at this morning. 
I fully believe God can do this. I know God can do this. That's better than the others. But there's another level above that one, and it's this one. I not only think God can do this, I not only know God can do this, but I fully expect God to do this. I'm banking on God doing it. I'm moving forward as if God's going to do this. That's how this guy lived. Write this down. Stephen lived as though God is near and he's listening and he's able and he will do great things in me, great things for me, and he's going to do great things through me. And it's going to be he that does it all. It's not me. This guy just lived dependently and expectantly. Man of great power, great faith, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how he lived. I love this guy. Recently, a little bit, a week and a half ago, and I finished this past week, uh, part of my plan in reading is I read a chapter a day in the New Testament. And that's five days a week, the weekdays. You need to catch what we're about to talk about. I finished up Ephesians. And it struck me again, as it always does, if you ever read Ephesians thoughtfully. This time it kind of stood out over and over. Paul writes about the idea of God's immeasurable attributes. Immeasurable. Talks about his immeasurable love. Talks about the riches of his immeasurable glory. The imme- Think about that. The immeasurable riches of his glory. Glory. He doesn't just have glory. He has riches of glory. He doesn't just have riches. He has immeasurably rich glory. But then in chapter 1, Paul prays. He says, hey, Ephesians, I'm praying for you that there, God will give you this revelation and this enlightenment that the eyes of your heart will be open so that you may know the immeasurable greatness of the power of God. God has immeasurably great power. So I thought through that. It hit me again yesterday. Paul just lays these layers and stacks up these descriptions of God's power. We can't even handle this one. Chapter 3. Now unto him who's able to do all that you ask. All that you ask. I don't know if I should. If he doesn't do it, it's not because he didn't have the power. He has the power to do all that you ask or think You can't think bigger than he can do. That's level one. Level two. He's able to do far more abundantly than all you ask or think. He can do all you ask or think, but because your minds are too small, Paul says, oh, by the way, he's able to do far more abundantly above that. And I'm like, man, that's so much bigger. That still doesn't touch chapter 1. Because what the real, the key of it all, the big one of it all, says, Paul just says, it's immeasurable. Yeah, you can't think of it. And he can do way more than what you can think or ask. But if you haven't got the point, it's immeasurable. His power can't be measured. 
just keeps going and going. He can do anything, anything he wants. So I'm reading that this week, and it dawns on me. Most Christians never experience but about that much of God's power. They're in the room right now. They're Christians in the room right now. And Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19 says that this immeasurably, immeasurably great power is available to us who believe. He has this power toward us who believe. Stephen's a man of great faith. I believe he's a man of great power because he tapped into this awesome, immeasurable, he didn't hit the limits by no means, but a lot more than everybody else. Most people don't experience the great power of God. They're saved. Years ago, I remember, and I'm going to have you actually write this. I didn't put, it's not a direct quote, I don't think. The idea that I first heard was probably 10 years ago from a pastor named Mac Tester preaching out of Ephesians. And if you get this, if you go home and you just chew on this, it'll change your life. Mac said, listen, you ought to go read Ephesians 1. Mac says, we don't need more power. Christians, we don't need, if I just have more power, there's somebody in this room right now, you're struggling with a certain sin, and you think, if I just had more power, you don't need more power. You know what we need? We need more, and this is what Paul prays for. Ephesians, I'm praying that God will open your eyes, that there'll be a revelation, a discovery to you. That Here's what we need. We don't need more power. We need more awareness of God's power and a greater reliance on the Holy Spirit of God that's already in us. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit has immeasurably great power. Literally, the power is living inside of you right now. You don't need more power. You need more reliance on God's power as you more and more discover how great God's power is. That's how we need to live. It's like this. If this room were dark... Could you imagine us thinking, if we just had enough power to run the lights in here, wouldn't it be great if we had enough power to run the lights in here? We do. We do. They have wires running in these walls. But there's a switch box right over there, and it's got numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 on it. And whichever one you hit, there's different amounts of light. The power is here. You've got to turn the switch on. The power in your life is there. Do you live with the switch on? You don't need more power. You need more awareness of God's power and more reliance on the Holy Spirit in the moment. So a while ago, I asked you a question. Now I'm going to ask another very similar one. Faith. I want you to really, don't answer out loud. I, I want you to answer in your head, though. You ready? Here's a question. Why do some people have faith and others don't? In this room right now, I don't know who it is. In this room right now, there are people with faith and there are others who don't have it. Why is that? Second question. Do you see how we just made two groups? Let's focus on the group now that has faith. Let's talk. Second question. I'm asking you to, in your head, if, if we were to put a microphone in, what would you say is the answer? Why do those who have faith, why do some of those who have faith have greater faith and others only have a little? These have no faith. These have greater. Those have great. These have a lot. These have a little. 
Why is that? I want to propose to you that faith has a dual aspect to it. Would you write this down? Number one, you say, Jeff, what's your answer? That's a good question. Why is it that some people have faith and others don't? Number one, faith is a gift that God must give us. Before we can even be saved, God has to give us the gift of faith. We're literally brought into this world with dead spirits. God has to give us the gift of faith. We don't have it. So there's the answer to the first question. Why is there this group here this morning? They have no faith and these others have faith. The answer is God has not yet given this group faith. He's given. It's it's a gift. Now I'm going to go further. Watch. Those that have been given faith. Do you know that the Bible says in 1 Corinthians there is actually a spiritual gift of faith? God gives faith and then he gives some greater measures of faith. God does that. It's a spiritual gift. It's not like they're more saved. I believe their their lives, their faith really probably comes in mostly in their prayer life. And trials don't seem to maybe just destroy them. Where this person over here, boy, they're just like, like a little child in the waves. And then there's these other people that's just, the waves come. and It's not that they're better. God gave them a gift of faith. These people over here, you have a different gift. Does that make sense? That's biblical. But there's a dual aspect. All that I just said, Grace, if you listen, I am not undermining all of that. That is the truth. But here's what I notice. The Bible, with that is filled with commands for people to consciously choose to believe God's promises. Why do some have faith and others don't? Why do some have more faith? God gives it, but watch. We're commanded to choose to believe God's power and God's promises. And so I would propose to you, some don't have it because they're not obeying the commands of the Bible. Some only have a little because they're not obeying the commands of the Bible to believe God. Not Stephen. Stephen believed God. Before we go to our third point this morning. Why do some people have faith and some have none? And why do some that have it have more than others? It's a gift from God. But it's also a conscious step of obedience that we're supposed to do. So I want to ask y'all something. Once you've written that, I I really want you to look this way. You're commanded to trust and believe and put your faith in God. In what area do you need to trust God? Right now there's somebody here this morning. You need to trust God to save you. You need to trust God to save you. Here's what you need to do. You need to be like Stephen and just know, have so much faith. I know that he is. I know he's close. I know he's able to save me. And I know he will save me. I'm banking on it. I'm moving forward as if save me. I'm asking you, save me right now. I'm confessing my sins. I'm putting my faith and trust in you. Right now, God, save me. And you know he will do it. I'm talking about something you do right now. I'm not talking about the end of the service. I mean, you start believing him right now. You trust. I believe Jesus' death was for me. It is enough to save me. I receive it right now. Go ahead and believe him right now. Go ahead and believe right now. Do it. 
Do it. Somebody's here this morning, you need victory. You need victory. You get whipped by some sin. It's just, you're saved. You need to do this. God, I'm getting whipped by this thing. And here you have immeasurably great power and you live in me. I know you're near. I know you're able. And I know you will do this. No more sin. You don't win anymore. And you start living in Ephesians. There's victory in Romans 6. Maybe you're here this morning. And some trial, man, it's just about to do you in. You need to say, God, open my eyes to your immeasurably great power. I know you're near. I know you're able. And I know you will cause me to be victorious through this. Somebody here is being attacked. Spiritually. Literally, demonic forces are attacking you. You may not know it. You may start having some suspicion. You're like, I I really think this is really going on. I think I'm being attacked. When I read Ephesians, I'm not asking for it, guys. But when I read Ephesians this week, it occurred to me, Jeff, if there were a hundred people in a room literally filled with demons. And, and some of you are like, ooh, these people are weird. I'm never coming back here. That's fine. Don't believe the Bible. <laughs> if there's a hundred people in a room, it occurred to me, Jeff, if they're all filled with demons and they know each other are and they communicate, if I were, and demons are so much more powerful than me, but if I were to ever realize in that moment the one in me has immeasurably great power, I could walk into that room and they'd immediately know, what are you doing here? I ain't scared of you. Those little beings in you know who's inside of me and they know they are not me. All of you together cannot. You say, Jeff, they might kill you. They may kill the body, but they can't defeat us. Read chapter 7. It's coming. You can't win. The word, oh, you're going to kill me? I go to heaven, buddy. It's okay. He in me is stronger than the one in you. And all the ones in you. But we forget that. We forget it. Somebody here, you need to start using your spiritual gifts and start serving the body of Christ. But you're afraid. You need to realize this one we're talking about that's in you, he's there. He's given you a gift to use. He has immeasurably, here's what you need to realize. I can... God, I can give this word of prophecy to those people that you've given me, and I will do it. You use me. God, I can teach this group of people these concepts. You can use that. God, I can lead this group. I can lead that task. God, you know I love my stuff. But if you've called me, I know that you will supply. And I can't contribute what you've told me to contribute because it's your immeasurable power and resources. God, I know you can use me to be an encouragement to that person in a way that really lifts them up. God, I can do this act of service in your power. And I will. Number three. Stephen was a man of grace and truth.
Stephen was a man of grace and truth. Look at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This man's filled. Watch this. This man's full of grace. He's consumed with it, controlled by it, identified by it. He has an abundance of grace and truth. Synagogues. We've heard that term. I'm going to throw it out real quick. Hang with me like the next minute and a half, and let's talk about some just historical things. Synagogues were meeting places for Jews originally that were dispersed Going back as far in the Old Testament as the Babylonian captivity, they're carried out of Israel. They don't have access to the temple anymore. They didn't really have synagogues before 586 B.C. Then they're carried away and they, they, start, they want to keep their faith. We're not allowed to go there. So they start having synagogues. And so hundreds of years later, the idea, it's like, hey, we've been doing that. We moved back to Jerusalem and we find other people or maybe our whole synagogue moved to there. And we kept the idea. And so like I said, just many, 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 apparently hundreds of synagogues. So these were meeting places for Jews that didn't have access. It's not real clear. How many synagogues are we talking about? There's actually five theories, and I want to spend a couple hours breaking down the five. Th- no, I do not. Theory number one. There's just one synagogue. That very well may be the right one. There's a, watch. There's only one synagogue. It's these freedmen. And some of them are from northern Africa, and some of them are from what we call Turkey. And they've made their way to Israel. And they meet there. Others say, no, it's actually two synagogues. Watch. There's freedmen from North Africa that meet, and then there's freedmen from Turkey that meet. Some say, no, it's actually three groups. There's this synagogue of the freedmen, and then there's this synagogue of those from Africa, and then there's this synagogue from those from Turkey. Some say, no, it's actually four it's freedmen from Alexandria, freedmen from Cyrenia, freedmen from Cilicia, and freedmen from Asia. And there's four synagogues. Some say it's actually five. There's the synagogue of the freedmen, and there's the synagogue of those from Cyrene, and then the one from those from Alexandria, and then those from Cilicia, and those from Asia. So we got, I don't know. All I know is this. Stephen, whether to one, two, five, he's making his rounds, and he's teaching things that is really blowing their minds and irritating them, and finally... When they couldn't refute him, they attack him. What are freedmen? Freedmen were former Roman slaves who had been released and freed or their descendants such as Paul. Catch this. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. But they could not withstand. So there's these disputes, apparently even organized debates. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Everybody who's watching this, like, boy, I hope we get him this time. Every time, Stephen always wins. It's clear to everybody watching. Man, he killed y'all again. Why? You see the word spirit? It could mean the Holy Spirit. And the ESV has capitalized that. It could mean this. They couldn't win because of his strong spirit. His energy, his fervency, his zeal, his, 
effectiveness, his believability. Man, he destroyed y'all again. But why? Why is he kidding? He's so believable. Man, the way he just uses the Bible, he's killing you guys. He's very believable, very effective. Oh, what are we going to do? Well, we need to lie about him and slander him and hire some false witnesses and see if we can kill him. Because we're sure not winning the debate. Now, those of you that know the book of Acts somewhat, help us. Who's coming? Who is coming that we know is linked to Stephen's death? Saul of Tarsus, which is in the region, what did I say earlier? Cilicia. I am not saying that Saul of Tarsus was in these synagogues. My hunch is that he was. Let this sink in. We know he's linked. We know he's pleased that Stephen is put to death. They end up laying their garments at his feet. It seems he's the leader of this whole thing that's happening. I believe, and many others long before me, and they put the idea in my head, and I, I believe it's a good one. Saul of Tarsus is actually in this synagogue or one of the synagogues. Let this sink in. Even Saul of Tarsus, who's taught by the great Gamaliel, Rabbin Gamaliel, Saul of Tarsus knows the facts of his Old Testament. And this guy is super smart. Just read the 13 books in the New Testament he wrote. Even with Saul of Tarsus' great intellect and all of his Bible knowledge, in his lost condition, even Saul is no match for Stephen. Stephen kicks his rear end. Write that down. I don't know how I have it worded. I don't have rear end in the note. But the idea is there. Even in his lost condition. Again, I wouldn't die for that note, but I really believe Saul, who later becomes Paul, brilliant man, very well trained. Why? Do you see the end of the note? Stephen has two advantages that Saul cannot overcome. Stephen has the truth. He's got the truth. And he has the Holy Spirit. You guys are writing several words, and so I'll offer this. To have the truth in a debate is a tremendous advantage. If we were going to have a debate about this podium, and I'm going to take the stance that this is a brown wooden podium, and you're going to take the stance that this is a metal silver gray podium, I like your chances to win the debate. Because you've got the truth on your No, it's, it's wood, and I would like to offer the proof that it is wood, you know. Come on. You'll see it's going to catch fire here in just a moment. No, you're going to kill me. You have the truth. Stephen's got the truth. They cannot beat him. Now listen. We're going to transition right here. You say, Jeff, this is awesome. The, ver- the note says, Stephen was a man of grace and truth. He's a man of grace and truth. He has the truth. I'm going into that more even next week. He has the truth, but now I need us to really focus for the next few moments on how Stephen had grace. This is very important. I shared these thoughts, part of them, with our group that was here Wednesday night. Thank you so much for those that came and we had corporate prayer together in here. God has given me a burden for our country. 
and it's growing. We're in the middle of something that is around the world now. Our country and among other places, many people, not all, but many people, follow me. But if I start saying something, don't immediately just launch into, that's right, you tell them, Jeff. Careful. And if you don't like what I start saying, hang on, hang on, hear the whole thing. Hear the whole thing. If you're watching online, don't just tune out in two or three minutes when you don't like something. Hear the whole thing. So we're living in a world that now has a whole month set aside for a celebration. To celebrate pride. Celebrate pride. What they're celebrating are people, and they're celebrating, lift them up, you're so courageous. And here's what's happening. These people are looking inward for truth and meaning. Hang with me. They're looking inside themselves. I don't care what anybody else says. And you're so brave because you've looked inside yourself for truth and meaning and purpose and direction and guidance. And we're celebrating people that are looking inward for that truth. But unfortunately, they're not looking outward for truth. What we really need to do is help people to stop looking inward for truth and meaning and start looking externally for greater truth and meaning. Here's what's happening around the world. And again, it's not just a month. Now they're spending several weeks in advance to promote and get ready and get all the garb and all the clothes ready for the month of celebration. And here's the mantra. Be true to yourself. You be true to you. And here's how I think that, what that really means. You be loyal to you. You be loyal to you. But unfortunately, there's God and there's you. And this movement is telling people, you be true to you and you be loyal to you. Even if it means being untrue and unloyal to God. What they're doing is literally setting themselves up as God. Looking inward for the truth. Instead of looking outward to God and His word for truth. No, I've got my truth inward. I've got to be true to me. I'm going to be loyal to me. Even if, and so with that dynamic, I would propose to you, pride is the right word. Pride is the exact right word. When it comes to me, or you God, and this is the original sin. I will be loyal to me. An author I read this week, last name Shoot, S-H-U-T-T. He wrote a really good article, but something he wrote stuck to me. And here's what he likened is going on in our, in our country. He likens it to a sailor who's been trained in the ways of navigation of the seas. And he knows that when in doubt, you look out for that fixed external thing in the sky that we call the North Star. When in doubt, you find the North Star... When there is no land to see, there are no landmarks. Where are we going? You find the North Star, and if you need to keep it on your left, or you need to put it on your right, or if you need to put it at your back, you go by that thing fixed. So this sailor finds himself on a boat, and it's like this boat is, something's not right. It's just not right. And finally, he goes up and he asks the captain, what is going on on your boat? And the captain says, hey, young man, we do things a little different on this boat. He says, you see that lamp up on the bow of the ship? You see that lamp? See that lantern? Yes. 
That's our North Star. That's our guiding light. That's our light. That's what we're following. You say, Jeff, what's the matter with that? Watch. Picture this boat. In the va- picture it, a boat in the vast ocean, and it has a lantern on the front of its own bow in the ocean. Now pan up in the sky, and when asked, what are you following? We're following the lantern on the front of the boat. The boat's doing this, and the boat's doing that. And it's doing, so we're going this way. Why are we going this way? We're following that lantern. Why are we going that way? We're following our light. Do you see the problem? The lantern, the light is on the boat. You got to get something outside of the boat that is not in you. We're living in a time period and in a society, a whole generation, not all, but most, are buying into this idea we don't need God or His Word. I'm just looking inward how I feel. And they're being lied to. That kind of boat, that boat represents a life. This person is totally adrift. They're just adrift in the sea of life. Here's the thing. We're all, all of us are born that way. Following some inward, what we think is reliable. I think this is right. So we just go that way. We're fulfilling. We're born fulfilling Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. But you know what our country needs? A few weeks ago we preached how Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God and he is distributing repentance as a gift. Repentance is a deep change of mind what we used to think to where we buy into what God says. This is what our country needs. This is what people that are celebrating pride need. They need repentance. It's a gift. Can I just put y'all's mind at ease for a moment? Because I don't want you to lose. I want to keep your attention. Standing in my office a few minutes ago, thinking about following the Holy Spirit. And I was prepared to do otherwise. But I hit this point, and it kind of dawned on me. I literally felt the Holy Spirit saying, And Jeff, after last week, I think that third point would be a good point to stop today. So that's coming. Because if you're sitting there going, we've got four and five. Oh, my goodness. What? We're almost done. Oh, okay. I can pay attention now. Good. Good. Our world needs the gift of repentance. How does that happen? Well, my mind was suddenly changed. I just woke up one day and I see things God's way now. Do y'all know how God does that? He uses words. His people's words. Your words. Your words. Your words. You say, Jeff, yeah, well, I'll bring them and they'll listen to you. Your words are part of God's plan to give people repentance. Therefore, write this down. Since God uses our words to give the gift of repentance and to give the gift of light and the gift of conviction, then we must be filled With grace and truth. We must be filled with grace and truth like Jesus. John chapter 1 verse number 14. John, one of his disciples, years later writes about the life of Christ. And John says about Jesus, we beheld his glory. The glory as of the one and only Son of God, full of grace and truth. Are you listening? Jesus is full of grace. I mean, this sounds like Stephen, but much greater. Jesus is full of grace and truth. 
J.D. Greer even comments, the order matters. Jesus is full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. And his point is, we, God's people, must be full of grace and truth in that order. I read that and I thought, wait a minute, Ephesians 4, verse 15 says that all of the body of Christ is to speak the truth in love. Are you all with me? We're all to speak the truth in love. Truth comes before love in that sentence. But does it? It's the truth in love. I got to the property this morning in my truck. What got on the property first? Say it. My truck. I was in it. My truck actually hit the property before... I arrived. Does that make sense? We speak the truth, but it's in love. Love and grace actually precedes the truth. You say, Jeff, you sound kind of zealous this morning about all these points. What's the big deal about this one? Write it down. That matters. The order matters. Because most people are not going to receive the truth without grace. Not going to receive the truth. Some people will. You can beat them over the head and scare them to death. But if you don't give them grace, most people are like, I don't want to hear that. I'm not receiving it. And here's the sad thing. They don't need just grace without the truth. I know that's some people's version. All they need is our love and grace. That's a lie. Oh, no, all they need is our love and we just need to love on them. No, we've got to tell them the truth. But they're not going to listen to the truth if you don't first give it in love and grace. Got to have both. I told the group Wednesday night, I've never really read anything, never even heard a sermon of this guy. I may have to give him a strong look. I read an article, a very, very strong article, in which he, very gently and politely, and I think this other person is one of his friends, this preacher I'm about to, I've already alluded to, he wrote this lengthy article in which he, at the end, kind of takes to task one of his friends that I know you've heard the friend's name, Probably. J.D. Greer writes the following in this article. Here, this is my last paragraph. Jesus' unstoppable power came from being filled with both grace and truth. Jesus was the only, I know what it says about Stephen. He's right. Jesus was the only fully truthful man and the only fully gracious man. Those concepts were not enemies in his nature warring against each other for balance. They were fully in agreement. You tracking? Stephen was a man of grace and truth because he's full of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit of Christ. Stephen's like Christ because Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. Greer writes, Churches today tend to gravitate Toward one of the two. Fundamentalists like truth without grace. Liberals like grace without truth. To be effective in this day is the idea. Today, you could get by with it years ago. You could get by with it. 
Not today. His whole point, we're going to lose this generation. To be effective as evangelists, we need to be full of both. Can't gravitate to that, can't gravitate to that. So I'm reading this. And I'm not going to say all. I would add the words, some fundamentalists do love truth without grace. And I'd probably say all liberals like grace without truth. But to be effective as evangelists, we need to be full of both. And then he blows me away with this last line. To be effective as evangelists, we need to be full of both. More truthful than the fundamentalist. And more gracious than the liberal. What? I get the more gracious than the liberal. While you're being so gracious and loving, love them enough to tell them the truth. Yeah, we need to be more gracious than the liberal. I get that. What do you mean? And he didn't spell it out, but I thought about it and I agree. We have to be more truthful than the fundamentalist. But hang on. What if the fundamentalist, everything they're saying is true? How can you be more truthful than the fundamentalist? All that they're saying is true. But wait, here's my answer. All they're saying is true, but they're not saying all the truth. How are you more truthful than the fundamentalist? By telling these people that you're giving the truth. Tell them the rest of the story. Give them more truth. You say, what's more truth? I struggle too. I struggle too. What you're doing, you need to repent. You need to turn to God. Stop looking within yourself. It's horrible. But what I love naturally myself, it's horrible too. We can be more truthful than the fundamentalists when we actually have a burden and we're not on our high horse being arrogant and smug. We're telling the truth, but we do it in love and brokenness and humility. I got the same problem, man. I don't have your problem, but I got this. We need a Savior. You need to repent. I did it at this time. Please, would you repent? That's what we need. We need that. Let's pause there. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for sticking with us so faithfully last week in the marathon. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Don't check out just yet. Please don't. Answer this honestly. People who absolutely know you the best. They know you the best. What would they say consumes you? They know you. What would they say? Oh, they love that. So much so that you're kind of identified by that. Stephen was identified by faith and power and grace and the Holy Spirit. Truth. Wisdom. Do those things identify you? What are you identified by? What are you consumed with? Before I pray, can we do something again? Just heads bowed, eyes closed. I want to invite you right now, right now. Right now. Would you do this? Acknowledge the Holy Spirit. This is important. You're going to be standing up in just a moment. Acknowledge the Holy Spirit. Acknowledge it. Talk to Him. Let him know, Holy Spirit, I surrender to you right now.
Hey, do a whole reset. Do a whole reset right now. I surrender to you. I'm going to obey what you tell me to say and do right here in a moment. Give me your eyes. What you tell me to do, Holy Spirit, I'm going to do it. If you tell me to go talk to somebody, if I'm planning on saying something you don't want said, I'm going to obey you. I dare you. Be filled with the Spirit. Lastly, if you need to have faith in God that He is near and He is able and He will do it, if you need to and you didn't do it earlier, talk to God right now and put your faith in Him. Let Him know, God, I'm taking your salvation right now, 1206. I'm taking it right now. God, tell Him. Believe. God, you are right. I believe you. I am a sinner and I need Jesus as my Savior. And you said in John 3, 16, Whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. I want that everlasting life. Since you're offering it, God, I'm taking it right now. I know you. You not only will do it, you have done it, Lord. I take it at this moment. If you are being defeated by some sin... Talk to God right now. God, I am accepting. I'm tapping into your immeasurably great power to defeat this sin. If yours is a trial, if you have some trial and it is just whipping you and beating you down, say, God, you have immeasurably so much more than I've ever tapped into. I'm tapping. I want more of that. I want to be more aware of your power, and I'm relying more on your spirit. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for our Savior. Please, let us be filled with your Holy Spirit, yielded, controlled by, identified. Let our church be identified as a Holy Spirit-filled church, not just a Holy Spirit-filled singers or staff, teachers, but, Lord, a church that is yielded. We intentionally ask for and seek your fullness, your abundance your complete control Lord give us great faith increase our faith let us be intentional Lord to obey your commands to believe you believe you may we believe you at all times and always in whatever specific way we need to believe at that moment And then, Lord, my last request this morning, would you let us live up to the name? Let us be filled with grace and truth equally. Leading, leading with grace, always ultimately getting to the truth in love. Let that define us as people, individually and corporately. For Christ's glory in his name, amen. Have a great week.